Well, uh, it's another good morning and welcome from me. Uh, my name is Nathan and uh, one of the elders here at the church and uh, very glad to be here today and sharing God's word. So far in the Redeeming Christmas series, uh, if you remember back three weeks ago when it began, uh, Pete talk, talked about redemption, which meant the deliverance from evil through the payment of a price. He shared the idea of receiving what is good, rejecting what is evil and redeeming what we can i.e. Christmas celebrations. Then Tom shared uh, two weeks ago about redeeming gift giving with a central focus on Jesus as the greatest gift of all and finding a gift of great sacrifice to honour those receiving them. That was another of his main ideas. Last week, Matt shared about redeeming culture at Christmas by living out three marks of the kingdom, servanthood, joy and authority. Hopefully that jogs your memory. To see where we're going today. This week, we come to redeeming relationships. Redeeming relationships. I'd ask you to pause and consider for a moment. What is the current state of relationships in our nation? And I will pause so you can consider it. (laughs) With crosses marked on the floor at shopping aisles. Masks being worn. 1.5 meter distancing. The conditions that we find ourselves just in the day-to-day life, I think have had a marked impact on the way that we physically, at least physically relate to one another, but also how we relationally, personally relate to one another. Um, as, As we've walked through the last 12 months, I've sometimes found myself wary of people going, oh, I can't get too close. What if I share something with them or what if they share something with me? It's sort of makes you wary of people when, previous to that, you weren't wary at all. You could get on with life quite normally. Well, my aim this morning is to share the Word of God, minister His grace, and to help us to seek relationships, even now, through the lens of faith in our Saviour. So in concert with Peter's words, to keep adding to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control. I know that many relationships are strained at present, and I'm aware that within our church body, most, if not all of us, have been working really hard to navigate our way through. What's been quite a challenging time relationally? Uh, So this morning, I'm not making a political statement. Rather, we gather together as the church today, and in this setting, we want to keep returning to our good shepherd. I want to do that by talking about an idol, the birth And the mandate. So, first of all, an idol. This idol, uh, I'm going to name personal autonomy. And the reason I raise it is because I think at the core of relational difficulty, this can perhaps pop up. This can be a a glaring temptation. Another way of describing this idol is uh, a person who says, I will be sufficient on my own, or seeking after self sufficiency apart from God. There was once a wild warthog, a meerkat, and a lion cub. (laughs) This wild warthog and the meerkat were buddies living free and easy lives on the plains of Africa. They had no worries. They could go wherever they liked. They stumbled upon a down-and-out lion cub whose life had almost ended. Vultures had circled. They were sitting around this lion cub. 
I'm guessing you've worked out who I'm talking about. The Lion King, that's right. Timon the meerkat and Pumbaa the wild warthog approach Simba who's trying to escape something terrible that he thought he'd done. As the ever-wise Timon listened intently, he piped up with the following advice. Look, kid, bad things happen and you can't do anything about it, right? Simba, right. This point, uh, when the world turns its back on you, you turn your back on the world. Timon's reply. Well, at this point, Simba asks a good question. Or he makes a statement, sorry. He says, well, that's not what I was taught. Which is a great pausing thought. It's not what I was taught. Suddenly, there's this opposing viewpoint coming smack bang into his life. Then maybe you need a lesson. Repeat after me. Hakuna. It means no worries. In other words, turn your back on the world and don't worry about anything. Now, this may seem like okay advice, right? But as you continue to see this unfold, what it actually meant was just live the way you want to. Forget about the world behind you and do whatever you like wherever you like, eat wherever you like, live wherever you like. It's a carefree life. Now, this seems so promising, right? But I think relationally, this is the very essence of this idol of personal autonomy. The idol of personal autonomy, I would say, is a raging temptation right now, and its promises will always, always under-deliver and wreck your soul. But in case you think it's something new, We're not alone in our struggle. Humans have been struggling for autonomy since that fateful day in the garden called Eden. Whether it be bodily autonomy, knowledge autonomy, autonomy through self-sufficiency, or children fighting for autonomy as they disobey their parents. To help us, uh, sorry, as they disobey their parents, this chasing autonomy will certainly affect the way that we relate to our creator and to our neighbours. To help us understand, let's cast our minds back to the garden called Eden. In his book, Awe, Paul Tripp reflects on what happened to Eve in the Garden of Eden. He says this, The passage notes that Eve saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, verse 6. Now let this sink in. To be desired to make one wise, Eve was enjoying close, personal, personal loving daily communion with the one who is wisdom. She was in fellowship with the most awesome source of wisdom that ever existed or would ever exist. She didn't need wisdom. The garden wasn't a place of wisdom famine. So what then was Eve seeking? What kind of wisdom vision had captured her awe? The serpent was selling Eve autonomous wisdom. That is, wisdom that would no longer depend on God as its source. So instead of awe of God producing her a submission to his wise will, awe of independent wisdom caused her to rebel against God's will. My proposal here is that the most devastating loss was not that Eve took the bait of autonomous wisdom, but actually it was that the once perfect, truly free relationship with her creator was now severed. Up until now, she couldn't be happier. She was the most flourishing she could ever be in the garden because she knew who she belonged to, her creator. But ever since this day, relationship with the creator of the world had changed. And not only that, but from this moment, everything changed for all humans in the way that they relate to God 
and their neighbours. As both Adam and Eve severed the relationship with God, they became ashamed. They covered themselves in leaves. Their marriage began to show signs of mistrust and they began to blame one another and the devil. They were escorted out of the garden and told never to return. This idol over-promised freedom and life and it severely under-delivered. Adam and Eve distanced themselves from the very one upon whom they depended for life and breath and everything. And so you can, see that you, you can see that the pursuit of personal autonomy apart from God brings with it shame, blaming, bitterness, anger, and isolation for those caught in its pursuit. This loss of vertical relationship with God meant loss of horizontal relationship with others. And it's been the great struggle ever since, relating with God and relating with others. How do we do it? You can also see that from this foundational example that the temptation of autonomy and the immense pressure that it places on our relationships is not a new one. In fact, it's been happening since that fateful day in the garden. It may have intensified in recent history, but there's nothing new under the sun. When a human worships the idol of personal autonomy apart from God, as with all idolatry, it wrecks them and the people around them. But my question is, what's it got to do with redeeming relationships at Christmas? Well, that's why I started here, because it has everything to do with redeeming relationships at Christmas. Our God knows full well the breadth of our temptation and the sins upon which we stumble and fall. He knows you. He knows that this is a temptation. He knows that it seems appealing to chase after this personal autonomy apart from God. But to continue on, after one idol comes the birth. An idol, then the birth. The birth of Christ is the most precious relational gift for anyone experiencing the devastating distance and the loss of true life that this idolatry delivers. The birth of Christ is the point at which all this distance was being completely undone. The distance between humans and God, the distance between God and humans, it seemed, was being undone at this very moment. Well, I'm going to pause here and I'm going to have a uh, Bible competition. So I need two volunteers and I'm asking children because children are with us. Joel knows what it's about. Joel, do you want to come out? Jamal, you know what it's about? Yep. Anybody else? You have to know where to find something in the Bible, that's all. So if you know the Bible, if you know the books of the Bible... We're, uh, we're going to have a comp. Two more volunteers. Holly's up. No one else? Is he up for it? No? Okay, leave it for the moment. That's all right. Who, yep, Caleb, come on out. We've got one Gilmore already, Phoebe. Yeah. Okay. Now, all of these guys have been in my class at school. Surprise, surprise. So they know what they're, they know what they're chasing after. Okay, you two boys... You're looking after, or you're looking up, don't touch the Bible yet, Philippians 2, verse 5 to 7. Not yet. Uh, No, not yet. You two are looking up James, where am I? James chapter 4, verse 8. James 4, verse 8, Philippians 2, verse 5 to 7. Ready? Go. It's on. 
Philippians 2, James 4. Oh, it's on. Someone's getting close here. Jamal's scurrying through the pages. If it's in here for, oh, Jamal's got it. Bible's on his head. Well done, Jamal. Now, Jamal, you know my rule. You can either choose to read it or pass it on. What do you want to do? You might pass it on. All right. Well, Joel's going to score the read this time. Where's the page numbers? Well, you guys found it yet? James chapter 4. It's definitely New Testament. It's up in the top right-hand corner up here. It's a bit unusual. There's the book. No. Oh, he found it. Holly's got it. Give her a round of applause. <laughs> Holly, as with the rule, you want to read it? Oh, Holly's going to read it. Give Caleb a round of applause, everybody. Thanks for joining in. All right. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 7 says this. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. Thank you. Holly, you ready? All right. No, chapter two. Did I? No, I said chapter four. I did say chapter four. James chapter four, and it's verse eight. Anybody know this off memory? It's a, great, it's, a, it's a great one to memorize. Here we go. Draw close to God and God will draw close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you hy- hypocrites. Pause there. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Boys, thanks very much. You can go and grab a seat now. Once again, give them a round of applause. Love that you could join us in seeking out scripture. Philippians 2, Christ, instead of clinging to his righteous God, decided, no, I'm going to put on human flesh and I'm going to come and join the rest of humans, humanity on that earth with the hope that he could rescue, with the hope that he could come and be present in a very, very physical sense. James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Well, drawing near to God in a deep and close personal relationship didn't look this way from the time of Eve right up until the time of Christ. Let me give you a few examples of what happened when people drew near to God's presence, especially in a haphazard way. It actually proved fatal in some circumstances. The people of God always had to have someone, just one person usually, go on their behalf to be present with God. So it wasn't a holus bolus, everyone come into God's presence because God's glory was simply too much. He was too great, too marvelous, that if anyone even drew close, they got the sense that they were in the presence of something or someone huge, mind-bogglingly huge. So take, for example, Mount Sinai. You remember Moses and the people of God at Mount Sinai? When God's Our presence descended on Mount Sinai with thunder, lightning, trumpet blast, fire, and smoke. The whole mountain itself shook. Can you imagine that? 
I've never been in an earthquake, but I can imagine it would be pretty unsettling. If you have been in an earthquake, maybe you get a little bit of a taste of what the people of God were experiencing at this point. Well, as you can understand, the mountain itself shook and the people trembled with fear, saying to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. You get this distance. How can we even come close to God? It's too much for us. Or then take the example uh, of the Ark of the Covenant, the physical representation of God's presence with his people. In 1 Samuel 6 and 2 Samuel 6, both of these tell stories of men who lost their lives when they haphazardly approached the presence of the Lord, approached the uh, Ark of the Covenant. One was where the Ark was being taken across the Jordan and uh, it was on the back of an ox and it looked like it was about to tumble and one of the men thought, I'll just get out and I'll rescue the Ark. And what happened to him was that he died. It was too much to come that close to the presence of God especially in a haphazard way. And then in 2 Samuel 6, it was where a number of people died because they decided to take a look inside the treasury box beside the ark, which they weren't meant to take a look at. And uh, they ended up dying because they approached the presence of God haphazardly. This is what they said in their response. 1 Samuel 6.20 says this, And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of this holy God? will then take the inner sanctuary of the temple. So you've got Mount Sinai, you've got the Ark of the Covenant, then you've got the uh, temple, and the inner presence was where God's presence dwelt. It wasn't in a bodily form, it was in uh, the form of the Ark of the Covenant, and it had cloud and, and uh, the, temp- uh, the curtains uh, sort of kept it separate. In the inner sanctuary of the temple, it was the place where God's presence dwelt. And it was only attended by the high priest once a year. And it was always on behalf of all God's people. Now you can tell from these examples that God wasn't satisfied to stay aloof. He wasn't satisfied to, uh, to be completely separate from his people. Instead, he wanted to be present. He wanted the people to know that he was present with them. It just didn't look like it does now. He chose to be present through the various symbols, cloud, fire, smoke, and and an ark. But to draw near to the presence of God was only for a select few. God was not satisfied to leave it this way, though. So somewhere between 3 and 6 BC, in living history, God himself, put on human flesh, came in the form of a baby and dwelt among us. Prior to this, the glory of God was simply too much. Right here, you've got Christ coming in the form of a baby that a mother and a father could cuddle, could kiss, could walk with, could play with, who had to tend to his needs. This is shocking, absolutely shocking, that the God of the universe would do this. He grew up as a man that people talked with, that people ate with and who people ultimately killed. Why? One reason is so that we could draw near to him. He was brought near so that we could come boldly with our mess of sin and our sadness and the shame and the anger and the bitterness 
And we could have confidence regardless of race, political persuasion, class, vaccination status or gender and find forgiveness and the true freedom that we were actually longing for. This Christmas, it doesn't get any better than this. This relationship changes everything. If you are distant in your relationship to God, you're missing true freedom, eternal freedom, freedom that lasts past this life and into the next. Christ's invitation is persistent. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you drink of the water that I give you, says Jesus, you will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John Piper puts it this way. We are cripples leaning on the cross-shaped crotch of Jesus Christ. We are paralytics living minute by minute in the iron lung of God's mercy. We are children asleep in heaven's stroller. The natural person apart from saving grace hates to think of himself in these images. Unworthy, beneficiary, crippled, paralytic, child. They rob him of his glory by giving it all to God. Therefore, while a man loves his own glory and prizes his self-sufficiency and hates to think of himself as a sin-sick and helpless, he will never feel genuine gratitude to the God, to God, and so will never magnify God as he ought, but only himself. As the Lord of personal autonomy is raging... Christ, our perfect Lord, makes a promise a trillion times better. He says, come to me, and where your sin abounds, my grace will abound all the more. Jesus' birth was intended so that you could draw near to God. If your household and life is anything like ours right now, I bet it gets pretty busy around this time. But I'm telling you, it doesn't have to come at the cost of drawing near to God. Whether you personally or whether you as a family, this is a sweet opportunity to draw near to God. The chase for personal autonomy is a weary, heavy laden chase. Come to Christ and make your heart right with Him. Well, from an idol to the birth, I want to finish now with the mandate. We've heard lots about mandates. But as the church, we actually have a higher mandate. There's a mandate that is most liberating. It's the most liberating for any person in all of history. It always has been and it always will be. It sums up all the law in two. And it comes from the one who promises eternal life for all who would believe and act on it. It is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. As you naturally, uh, sorry, as you abandon the idol of self-autonomy and its destructive promises and fulfill the mandate of Christ, it naturally affects the way that you relate with others. God, your father, becomes your hope and your life and your joy and your peace. And you can't help but draw near to your neighbors in love. This is where you get to redeem relationships. For many people, Christmas can be a time where relationships with others, both family and friends and neighbors, are placed under pressure. After drawing near to God, you find ways to draw near to your neighbors in love. Be creative. Be generous. Be courageous. 
I'm going to give just five ways, possible ways to redeem relationships this Christmas. It's clearly not exhaustive, but it makes a good start. So number one, have a meal. Tim Chester, in his book, A Meal with Jesus, made the claim that during Jesus' ministry years, he was either coming from a meal or going to a meal. Hospitality for Jesus was something significant. He was, uh, the claim against Jesus was that he was a glutton and a drunken. So clearly, he had plenty of meals all the time with lots of people. And in this way, as we get to image Jesus this Christmas, you get to lean out towards people in a way that possibly uh, the rest of the year you don't get a chance to. Uh, The idea is that you would continue to do it to image Jesus throughout the year. If you have a home, invite people into your home where possible. If you have money in your budget, take someone out for a meal. If you have a barbecue, invite someone for a barbecue. Find a way to connect with people relationally at this time of year in particular and give them the gift of faith or hope or joy or peace that comes from Christ. Find a way to do that. Maybe it's a, uh, it's a little tract. Um, have a meal with them and share a tract uh, about the hope of Christ this Christmas. If anything, the hope of Christ is a shining light right now in our fractured society. Number one was have a meal. Number two, make plans to worship God and make them clear to others. It's always possible uh, that if you don't, someone else will. Uh, You might know uh, people in your own family or friends who make plans. And you know that they make plans. They're always busy making plans and executing those plans and inviting others to come and join them in those plans. Uh, And it's really easy particularly when you get busy, just to say yes to a bunch of other people's plans, to look back and go, ah, I really wanted to do something back there, but I never planned it and executed it, so I regret it. I missed worshipping Christ in the way that I know was going to be special for me and for my family, and I missed it. So, rather than looking back with regret, make plans to worship the Lord in the way that you need to. Sometimes other people's plans might be right up your alley. Get into it. Other times, it just needs to be a little bit of space so that you can get about doing what you've planned to do so that uh, it finds its rightful place. Don't miss honouring Christ and planning to honour Christ in the special way that you do. It's good to make plans and execute them rather than look back with regret. Number one, have a meal. Number two, make plans to worship the Lord and make it clear to others. Number three, pray. There are many things that prayer accomplishes in the heart and in the life of a believer. One of them is it turns our hearts and our desires to be for another human rather than against another human. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 6. He said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you. Pray for all those who abuse you. Jesus' invitation here is to pray because he knows that in the heart of a person, it's really easy to build a wall, to turn your back on the world and forget about it. When what Jesus says is lean in. Now, if this enemy continues to be physically abusive or whatever abusive, uh, Jesus doesn't say go 
physically near them. But he does say, pray. Because you have no idea what God can do in answer to your prayer, even for your enemy, even for those who disagree with you, even for those whom you find very, very challenging to relate to. Number four, ask good questions. In the recorded conversations of Jesus, he is a master at asking questions. In our current climate, it's easy to view other people as their ideas rather than as human beings made in the image of God. James K. Smith pens the, uh, pens the term, we're not just brains on a stick. It's easy right now, I would say, to look at another person and go, ah, oh, they're that idea, so I'm not going to, I'm going to avoid them. Or they're that idea, I disagree with that, so I'm going to avoid them. Well, I challenge that and I would suggest find a way to have a conversation that would ask good questions. The person you interact with is a precious part of God's creation. Like Jesus, become a master at asking good questions. A genuine question that takes interest in the person you're relating to demonstrates that you're interested in them and want to hear what they have to say. This is particularly true when a family member or friend or neighbor make a big claim that you actually may disagree with. Before you go into bat for your side of the argument, ask a question and be genuinely interested in what you hear. One of the priming questions that I remember being taught uh, earlier on in my teaching career was, what do you mean by dot, dot, dot? So if a person makes a claim, rather than going in and heating up the argument, why not ask a question, what do you mean by that? Can you help me understand I'm actually interested in what you have to say? Sometimes it can be incredibly disarming and the person feels confident to be able to actually have a conversation with you. Uh, sometimes it means that they haven't thought out well what they actually mean by that and it opens up an opportunity for you to, uh, to share some thoughts. Ask good questions. Take a genuine interest in the people around you. They are more than brains on a stick. They are humans made in the image of God. And finally, set a time. We're finite creatures living in a finite world. In some relationships, you know that the longer you spend there, the more the relationship spirals. You also know that the more tired you become, the less patient, wise, and loving you become. Be wise and intentional about setting times and boundaries where they are necessary. When it comes to younger children and summer holidays, I'm sure you'd all agree, the evening time is the best time to be outside playing around or having a barbecue with somebody. But that often can turn into late night after late night after late night. And you know that the relational dynamic, even in your own household, becomes pretty messy as, uh, as everybody feels the weight of being tired. Set a time and be willing to maintain it. Any parent knows this has a compounding effect on the relational dynamic in the house. Be wise and intentional and set times. So there you go. An idol, the birth, and the mandate. I'll ask the band to come and we're going to sing in worship to our good Lord again. As Christmas time approaches, we gather with friends and family and enjoy many traditions with our children. We're in relationships all over the place. Some we would rather avoid, others we delight in. Sometimes the busyness increases while the time to draw near to God, to slow down and hear His voice is most often neglected and squeezed out. 
of the schedule. Well, as you're in the thick of this season of Christmas celebrations, flee the idol. Flee the idol. Draw near to God. He has abounding grace for you. And fulfill Christ's loving mandate 